Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16. If you happen to find 1 Corinthians chapter 3 while you're going there, you might put your finger in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I'm 1 Corinthians chapter 3, not 13, but, uh, and go back to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, notice I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art. I want you to underline the next two words, the Christ. He just didn't say thou art Christ. He said thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I want to preach tonight on Christ, the rock of the church. But I'm going to be covering basically two subjects because you might understand the term rock, but if you don't know what the term church is and what it means, then you're still not going to have a clue what's going on. So we're going to deal with both of these subjects tonight, the Lord willing. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we come to you now in the name of the Lord Jesus And I beg of you again tonight for the filling of the Holy Spirit, not just for power and the preaching, but dear God, also for clarity, for understanding. God ground us. There's so many winds of doctrine out there, and we want to stand firm on thus saith the Lord. So teach us tonight, instruct us, convict us, and change us. Do a work in our hearts, and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, since we find that he is the head of the church in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18... And he is the Christ. We need to understand something about the church. For most of us, this is going to be some review. But since there is a lot of false teaching out there, we need to make sure we have a clear understanding about what the church is. There is one word that is used over and over again. Jesus used it here. He used it also in Matthew chapter 18. And he also uses it several times in the book of the Revelation. The word that is translated church is the Greek word ekklesia. It literally translated means a called out assembly. You say, well, where do we get the word church? The etymology of the word, the English word church, simply means of the Lord. And truly, the church is of the Lord. It's his body. It's his bride. He paid for it with his blood. The Bible says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So its literal meaning is a called out assembly. The word is found over 110 times in your New Testament. Now that's an awful lot of mentions. It's amazing how much time we'll we'll spend on studying something which only has one or two mentions in the Word of God. But this has over 100 mentions in the Word of God. So why is there such confusion about what the church is? Since you find it over and over again. Now, we find it only meaning all the believers that have believed one time, and that is in Hebrews chapter 12 when the scripture talks about the 
firstborn, the church of the firstborn meeting in heaven. And that's in Hebrews chapter 12. That's when the whole church has been gathered together, literally assembled up in the heavens. Uh, There's a lot of teaching out there, a Protestant teaching, that the church is universal, invisible, mystical. But that's a Protestant teaching. It's not a Baptist teaching at all, uh, unless you get it from the Protestants, okay? It's an assembly. You say, well, what about in this passage? Well, we need to understand a few things about how it is worded here, what takes place. First of all, speaking of the Lord Jesus, in the gospel accounts, he only used the word ecclesia twice. He used it here in chapter 16, and he used it again in chapter 18. Now, in chapter 18, you'll remember there's a brother who has ought against his brother, and he goes to him uh, to let him know that the guy had wronged him. The guy doesn't hear him, so he brings two others with him. He doesn't hear him or hear them. And so then Jesus says to take him before the church. Now, you can't do that before the universal church. It hasn't met yet. Its meeting time is coming. Obviously, it's dealing with the local assembly. And we have absolutely no reason to think that the message, the mention of it in Matthew chapter 16 is any different. You'll notice it was in the singular, and that's important. Let me quote from Kent Brandenburg. He wrote an excellent uh, several-page article simply on the church, local versus universal, all right? Church, ecclesia, that's the Greek word. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 is a singular noun that's important. Now, that does not mean that there's one of them in the entire world. For instance, if I say, you know, this afternoon... Uh, the phone rang here at Madison Baptist Church, and I answered it. Does that mean we only have one phone? Matter of fact, we have several phones. I have a phone in my office. The secretaries each have a phone. Brother Wally has a phone. Uh, Brother uh, Brian Brown has a phone. Brother Jeff Smith has a phone. We've got a phone back in the kitchen, and we used to have one in the fellowship hall. We've got a number of phones. But when I say I answer the phone, you're not thinking... Oh, did he answer all the phones in the world? No, I answered one phone. So I'm not saying that there is only one phone in the world since I wasn't referencing a particular phone. The singular noun can only be used two ways, a particular or a generic way, one or the other. Often the singular noun is used in a generic way in the New Testament. It's used that way all the time in Greek and in English, and also used that way, by the way, in many other languages. And this is very basic, very basic grammar. When Jesus says, I'll build my church, we don't assume that he means there's going to be just one. Now think about it. I'll try not to go through this too fast. He could be talking about the church generically. I think that he was, but it isn't easy to conclude whether it's particular or the Jerusalem church by the context or the generic use. It could be either, could be both. We certainly shouldn't make any conclusions about what church means from a passage ambiguous in its context. Now, think with me. What would be good to do is to look at how Jesus uses the word ecclesia in the 20 times that he uses it. Twice in the book of Matthew. And as I said, 
in Matthew chapter 18, he's obviously referring to a local assembly of believers. In the book of the Revelations, it's used several times. Uh, all but one of the times in the book of the Revelations, it's used in chapters 1 through chapter 3. Of course, it gets caught up in chapter 4. And then we find a final mention of it again in chapter 22. Or, yeah, chapter 22. But here's the thing. In each of those cases, it's a local assembly. For instance, he wrote the book of the Revelation to the seven churches of Asia Minor. He didn't write to the church of Asia Minor. He wrote to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And he gave a letter to each one of those local assemblies. Remember, that's what the word means. It is a called out assembly. And that is how Jesus used that word in all the other times. So I don't have any doubt he used the same thing, used it the same way right here in chapter 16. Brandenburg goes on to say this. There is no mystical or spiritual or protonic usage of the singular noun. You've got two choices, particular or generic. Eighteen times, or he says if Jesus was using it as a generic, that doesn't change the meaning of the word. The word is still assembly, called out assembly, ecclesia. He's talking st- still about an assembly and not just a particular one. He's talking about it as his institution. If I say, I will write with my pen. I want you to get that. If I will, if I, I will write with my pen, pen doesn't suddenly become universal or mystical without warning. It retains the meaning, pen, even though, by the way, I've got more than one pen. I've got several pens, but I'm not going to sit down. I'm, I wrote, I am going to write with my pen number 147. I write with my pen. Doesn't change the makeup of the pen. Even though there may be many pens, I'm going to write with my pen. That's how I refer to it. Jesus said in this passage, I, on this rock, I will build my church. Don't have any doubt he's referring to the many local assemblies. It retains the meaning, even though it isn't talking about or distinguishing a particular pen using that illustration. It is my pen so that it narrows it down, but it doesn't create something that has a different meaning than pen. It's still a pen. And the assembly, the church, is still the church. Now, everything that's called the church is not one of his churches. It does make a difference what you believe. I mean, the church is going to be one, according to the scripture, going to follow the guidelines of scripture. It's got to believe right about Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, that's what this passage is actually about. It's about that more than it's about the church. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ. And it's important that we understand that. So, The church is mentioned over a hundred times, and I believe from all of its uses, we get a very clear understanding of what it is. It's still a called out assembly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, not 3, but chapter 5, you've got a situation with a man taken in adultery with his father's wife. 
And Paul writes to them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he tells them the next time they were gathered together in his name, they were to turn such a one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Well, the so-called universal church hasn't meant yet. And by the way, it has no meanings until it comes together, Hebrews chapter 12. So how in the world could the church take care of this man who was in sin if it had a universal context? By the way, most every place the apostle Paul went, when, when he got believers, he would organize a local New Testament assembly of those believers. He did that over and over again. Uh, we find not only that, but we find in Revelation that Jesus is found in the midst of the seven candlesticks. And in chapter 1 and verse 20, the seven candlesticks are the seven churches. Jesus is in the midst of the church. You've got to believe right about Jesus. You've got to believe right about his work. And you've got you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Now, if you preach another gospel, it's not his church. It may be an assembly... Just like, for instance, a couple of uses of the word ecclesia refers to the people of Ephesus when they gathered together in an assembly to try to do harm to the Apostle Paul. And it's called, the word ecclesia is used there. It was an assembly. The church, the assembly, is to assemble. Now, certain verses are in the Bible are absolutely key verses for major doctrine. Let me give you a couple of examples. In the book of Genesis, chapter 1, you have God and creation. And all of Scripture rises or falls on whether or not Genesis, chapter 1, is true. And it is true. If you can't trust the God of the universe to tell us right about creation, then, friend, you can't trust him about your salvation either. Either he knows exactly what he did... And the Lord said, and it was so. And the Lord said, and it was so. And the Lord said, and it was so. In Genesis chapter 3, you have the record of the fall of man. What takes place? Described for us in Romans 5, uh, 5.12, when he says, Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. So death passed upon all men, for the all of sin. You see, evolution, the theory teaching of the false theory of evolution. If that is true, then there's no need for the Savior. You see, if evolution is true, then there is no federal head. And so even if there was a man called Adam when he died, it could not have meant the death of all creation. So there would be no need for a redeemer, for a second Adam, for a Savior. You destroy Genesis chapter 3. And again, you've got no need for the Christ. This should only be a good history book and not even a good history book because those very fundamental stories would be so. You get to Matthew chapter 1 and you find that Matthew chapter 1 lets us know that there was proof that Jesus of Nazareth is the son of David. He is the Messiah and the record was in the temple as you've got those 18 verses taking us down the line of Christ from David. Now, this is absolutely vital. Actually, the line of Christ goes from Abraham down to David in Matthew chapter 1. It goes all the way back to Adam 
and again through David in Luke chapter 3. But the very first chapter of the New Testament is as vital to the gospel message as is Genesis chapter 1 to the whole Bible or Genesis chapter 3 to the whole Bible. It proves to us that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. Now, the Bible says this in 1 Corinthians 3.11, Another foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Some people think, when they think of Jesus, they think that Christ is his last name. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus is his name, but Christ is his title. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one of God. So I want to look at some verses, and you'll have to write them down. We don't have time to turn to them all. That would take too long. But we're going to look, uh, I'm going to read off some verses that clarify this matter of the Christ. We have to have a proper understanding of what that means and that Jesus of Nazareth is that Christ. So it's not a last name, it is a title, and it's defined for us in Scripture. In John chapter 1 and verse 41, you remember that Andrew, after meeting Christ and coming to the realization, meeting Jesus, and he comes to the realization that this Jesus is the Messiah, is the Christ, the one that he heard John the Baptist say, uh, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. The Bible says that he went, Andrew, went to his brother Peter. And he said to Peter, We have found the Messiah, which being interpreted is the Christ. Now the term Messiah is the Hebrew term for the Greek term Christ. Messiah, Christ, same thing, the anointed one, the promised one, the deliverer that God promised to send way back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Jesus of Nazareth is it. It was a title given prophetically to the coming deliverer. In Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1, the Bible says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek, to bind up the brokenhearted, and so on. When Jesus got up to preach in Luke chapter 4, after his uh, temptation, he got up to preach. He read from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And then he announced to the people, he said, Today, this is fulfilled in your ears. He was claiming, they knew that was a Messiah passage. They knew that was a Messianic passage that referred to the Christ. And Jesus told them very plainly, I'm he. I'm the one that he was talking about right here. This scripture, this prophecy has been fulfilled. In the Old Testament, you'll find that prophets, priests, and kings were to be anointed. Here Jesus, of course, is all three prophet, priest, and king. They preached, and the disciples, when they went out, they preached that Jesus was the Christ. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. The scripture says, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, Amen. the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. He is it. We need not look for another. He is the one that God promised in the Old Testament. 
We see him as Christ the King, introduced to us right away in Matthew chapter 1 as the son of David. The kings of Israel were anointed. King Saul, you remember, was anointed by Samuel. King David was anointed by Samuel. And we find, of course, the reason Matthew begins with the genealogy is to prove that Jesus is the rightful king. And God promised a king in David's line in 2 Samuel chapter 7. One who would reign forever. He obviously was not talking about Solomon. Solomon only reigned for 40 years. But Jesus will reign forever. And then you've got Christ the prophet. In Psalm 105 and verse 15 and 1 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 22, both times it says, Touch not mine, notice the term, touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. A prophet was a mouthpiece for God and of God, proclaiming God's holiness and proclaiming God's judgment for sin. You don't find the prophets going around saying, God loves you today. That was not the message of the prophets. The message of the prophets was exposing the sin of the people and exposing the coming judgment of God because of their sin. Now, if they got right from the preaching, then they would be spared. If not, then they would have to suffer God's chastening, and it was always severe. If you read through the book of Judges, you'll see that quite plainly, by the way. Now, God gave a prophecy of a coming prophet in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15. And the scripture says, The Lord thy God will raise me up a prophet from the midst of time of thy brethren like unto me. Unto him ye shall hearken. I want you to turn over to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Because when John the Baptist came on the scene, preaching righteousness, crowds were beginning to flock to him. The Jewish religious leaders did not like it. Notice beginning in verse 19 of John chapter 1. And this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. He's very plain about it. They ask him, what then? Art thou Elias? That's Elijah. He said, and he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet? Now he knew who they were asking about. They knew who they were asking about. They were asking about the prophet of Deuteronomy chapter 18, the one that God promised to send. And he answered, no. And so then they said, well, who art thou? That we may give an answer to them that sent us. What sayest thou thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As said the prophet, he saith. That voice was prophesied by Isaiah. That's who John was. Making straight the path of the Lord. So in verse 25, it says, And they asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it, I am not worthy to one loose. 
These things were done in Bethabar beyond Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man, which is preferred before me, for he was before me. Verse 32, And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending, and remaining on he, on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record, now notice this, I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. A clear testimony as to who Jesus of Nazareth is. John was not that prophet. It's interesting to me, by the way, that we have absolutely no record in the Scripture of John the Baptist working even one miracle. And here, these religious leaders came to John. They said, are you the Christ? He hadn't worked one miracle. Jesus worked a multitude of miracles. And you remember when John's in prison and he sends his disciples to Jesus and they said, are you the one that, uh, that was to come or should we look for another? He said, you go back and tell John all the works that you've seen me do because those works proved he was the Christ. So here were the Jews asking John the Baptist if he was the Christ when he hadn't done any miracles, and they rejected Jesus, who did all the miracles, including raising the dead and getting the blind to see. What amazing miracles Christ had done, and they rejected him. Not only that, we see Christ as the priest. In 1 Samuel 2.35, the scripture says, And I will raise me up a faithful priest that shall do according to that which is in my heart, And in my mind, and I will build him a sure border. Now, in the Old Testament, the priests were anointed in Exodus 30 and verse 30, Leviticus 16 and verse 32. To the Jew, every need would be taken care of here in one individual, king, prophet, and priest. But there's a difference here. Jesus was not a priest after the Levitical priesthood. And we obviously don't have time tonight to go through Hebrews chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, where the writer makes it very, very plain that Jesus is our great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And the explanation for that is in those three chapters. You can take the time to go ahead and read that. So, the Christ clarified. He is the anointed one. He is the promised one. He is the deliverer that God had promised. He is the Messiah. That's Jesus. He's the one who is the head of the church. And he is the one who said back here in Matthew chapter 16, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now we saw the Christ clarified, but next we need to look at the Christ identified. Do you realize that there have been over 2,000 people of Jewish extraction, and I'm not preaching against the Jews now, Uh, there have been 2,000 of Jewish extraction who have claimed to be the Messiah. Now, there have been Gentiles that have claimed to be the Messiah too. As a matter of fact, Sun Young Moon claimed to be the second coming of Christ. 
And he said that Christ failed to fulfill his mission in his first coming by setting up the perfect family, the perfect marriage. And Sun Young Moon, who's been dead and he didn't rise. Sun Young Moon, that's why they had all those marriages in the big stadiums and stuff like that, because they believed that was God's plan. As a matter of fact, the Moonies had a teaching concerning the fall of man, that the problem with Adam and Eve, the fall was that they committed fornication or adultery. How? How? Now, there was an Indian, a young Indian boy, the Maharaji. He claimed to be the second coming of Christ. He liked Superman comics and other things that he was into and a lot of food. He'd put on a lot of weight. Uh, this is probably 40 years ago now. Matter of fact, he even came to the States and had a big uh, get-together down at the Houston Astrodome where they packed the place out. But they were all false. So who is the one who is the Christ? That's the key question. So we're going to allow the scriptures to answer that. Give you a number of verses. If you want to write them down, you can look them up as you study them yourself. John 1.41, Andrew said to Peter, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, it says in verse 42. Philip said to Nathanael in John chapter 1 and verse 45, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth. Nathanael said to Philip, in John 1, 49, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. The woman at the well said to the Samaritans in John chapter 4 and verse 29, she said, uh, come and see, or come see a man that, which told me all things, whatever I did, whatsoever I did. He said, she said, is not this the Christ? Now, back in verse 25, she said to Jesus, she said, We know Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. And Jesus answered her by saying, I that speak unto thee am he. By the way, a little bit later in John chapter 4 and verse 42, the Samaritans spoke back to the woman and they said, Now we believe and know that this is indeed the Christ. Peter said to Jesus in John 6, 69, you remember when many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him? That's what it says in verse 66. Jesus turned to the 12 and they said, will you also go away? Simon Peter answered him and he said, we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Notice the term, the Christ, the Christ. And it's amazing how many verses that the two terms are put together. The Christ, the son of of God. Martha said to Jesus in John chapter 11, right after Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, she answered in John eleven twenty seven, 27, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. And then John said to everybody in John 20, 31, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God. You know, if you were to ask a, an Orthodox Jew today, do you believe in the Christ? They would say yes. And if you didn't know better what you would answer them, well, then you must be saved if you believe in Christ. 
But here's the problem. They believe in the Christ, but they're looking for His first coming. Their problem is they deny that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. Now, thank God there are Jews getting saved all over the world. Just like in the early days of the church, practically everybody that got saved were Jews only. For they wouldn't, up to Acts chapter 11, they wouldn't even uh, witness to, uh, to Gentile people. And you remember as Paul went around, he said, uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Good night, we're not against Jews any more than we're against Gentiles. Matter of fact, most of us here are Gentiles. And we love, hey, God chose to send his son through the Jews. And part of the way we know that Jesus is the Christ is because he's in the line of David. So he had to be a Jew by birth. That's the way God prophesied it. That's the way he set it up. After Christ was crucified, the disciples' whole faith was shaken for a while. You remember on the day of the resurrection, Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus. He came up on two of his disciples. They were downhearted. This is in Acts chapter 24. And he asked them what the problem was. And they couldn't believe that he hadn't heard that Jesus. Now they're talking to Jesus, but they don't recognize him. After all, they saw him die. They saw him buried. And they had heard that he had, somebody said the grave was empty and he had risen. But they didn't believe it yet. Verse 21 in Luke 24, they said, But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. So Jesus answered them this way in verse 25. He said, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and entered into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. I'll tell you what, I hope God's going to replay that for us when we get to heaven. I want to hear that Bible conference right there. I don't think he'd have any trouble doing it. I mean, I just wonder how many verses... He would pull out of there from the Old Testament that prophesied those things that we hadn't even thought about. That's going to be cool. That's going to be all right. But he proved to them that he was the Christ, and that's what the Christ was going to do. Now, when the disciples went out on the day of Pentecost and began to preach, we have this record Starting in Acts 2.36, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Before Saul became the apostle Paul, shortly after his conversion in Acts chapter 9 and verse 22, the scripture says, but Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus proving that this is very Christ. Paul in the synagogue of the Jews when he was up at Thessalonica in chapter 17 of the book of Acts, verse 3, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered as risen again from the dead and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. At Corinth in Acts chapter 18 and verse 5, And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. 
when Apollos was at Achaia in Acts chapter 18 and verse 28. The Bible says of Apollos, for he mightily convinced the Jews and that publicly, showing that by the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. You see, you can talk about Jesus dying on the cross, but you'll remember there were two other men that died on crosses right beside him. What makes Jesus' death so special? They weren't the Christ. They had their blood shed at Calvary, but their blood didn't pay for anybody's sin. Only Jesus was the one who is the Christ, a lamb without blemish and without spot. And it's by his blood that we are cleansed from all sin because of who he is, the Christ. That's why Jesus in John chapter 8 and verse 24 said to the Jewish religious leaders, he said, you shall die in your sins for except ye believe that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. You've got to believe right about Jesus. Now, this is absolutely vital. It's important. You take, for instance, the Christ is God. He's the Son of God. He is God. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 10 and 11. You're my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Now, you've got to believe right about Jesus of Nazareth, being the Christ, that he died on the cross for our sin and rose from the dead three days later, rose bodily from the dead. John chapter 2, he told the Jews, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, they thought he was talking about the temple at Jerusalem. For they said to him, forty and six years was this temple and building, wilt thou rear it up in three days? Verse 22 says, but he spake of the temple of his body. He came bodily out of the grave. Say, preacher, why are you giving all that? Because you take the Jehovah's Witnesses. They, be, they don't believe Jesus is God. They believe that he was, um, he was the archangel Michael who became a God. And he only raised out of the grave spiritually. That's a false Jesus. That's not the Jesus who is the Christ. That's not the Jesus who is the Messiah. You've got to have that right. That leads us to the last point. And that's the Christ classified. We get back to the statement in verse 18. When he says, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now what is this rock? Or who is this rock? Maybe a better question. And throughout the centuries, there's been three main positions concerning who's he talking about? With the rock. Now, the first one I want to give you is the Catholic position, the Roman Catholic Church position on this. Because Jesus said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, they're saying that the rock is Peter, because that's who he was talking to. And they give some reasons for that. There are basically four lists of disciples in the scripture Matthew, Mark, and Luke give the list of the twelve. Acts also gives a list, and those four lists, Peter heads 
all four lists. His is the first name mentioned. Not only that, he is the one who led the movement to replace Judas in Acts chapter 1. And of course, that's what the scripture had said. He quoted from the book of Psalms that he was to be replaced. He also opened the door to the Jews, they say, at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Now, here's the problem with that. Only Peter's message is recorded, but the Bible's very plain. Peter didn't go out there by himself. He'd been in a prayer meeting for 10 days with 120 up there. And when they were filled with the Holy Ghost, they all went out and preached. But he gives us the message of Peter in Acts chapter 2, but we still got all of them going out. And the fourth reason, they say, is that he opened the door to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 when he won Cornelius and his household to the Lord. Now, there's a problem with that. He was not recognized as a leader of the church at Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 10, he wins the household of Cornelius to Christ. But in Acts chapter 11, he's called on the carpet by the church to give an answer for why he went into Gentiles. In Acts chapter 15, we find the Jerusalem council. And the head of the Jerusalem council was absolutely none of the apostles. It was James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was the pastor of the church. And even all the apostles were subject to James, not to Peter. And I'll remind you also that in Galatians chapter 2, when Peter made the horrible mistake of separating from the Gentile believers, when some of the believers from the Jerusalem church came up, Paul tells us that he withstood him to the face, for he was to be blamed. He had to straighten Peter out. Now, there's another reason he couldn't have been the first pope. That other reason was Jesus healed his mother-in-law. So we know he had a wife. I said that to one Catholic one time. They said, well, just because he had a mother-in-law doesn't mean he had a wife. What idiot would get a mother-in-law without the wife? I mean, really think about it. So, it's, <laughs> it can't be Peter. And it can't be Peter from the very text itself. He says, thou art Peter. The word that is translated Peter means little stone. And then he says, and upon this rock. And the term he uses for that is, it's a different Greek word, and it means big stone. He said, thou art Peter, you're a little rock. He says, but upon this rock, I will build my church. He made no intention of saying he was building the church on Peter. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11, there is one foundation stone, and it's not Peter. It's Jesus Christ. Now, having said that, you, say you, you said, preacher, there are three. Yes, there are, and I'm going to do these two together. Because honestly, I, you may see a big difference between these two. I don't see any difference at all. Uh, one is that Christ is the rock. And the other is that the confession that Peter just said, the confession that Christ is the Messiah, that, Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, that that's the rock. Well, what's the difference? I, I don't see a difference in it. Some have. Uh, the Bible says in Hebrews 6.1, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. In the prophecy in Isaiah 28 and verse 16, Therefore, thus, uh, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion 
for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, he that believeth shall not make haste. Yes, if you say, well, I believe that Jesus is the rock. I go along with that. I believe the confession that Christ is the, uh, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. I believe that's the rock. I agree with both of them. I don't have a problem with it. Several years ago when I went to Bible college, a lot of years ago now, one of the things we were taught in Bible college about the Bible was that we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. That verbal and plenary means we believe that every verbal, every word was given by God, and plenary means all of it. Well, I believe that. Now, I remember in the class that I was in, they said, we're not talking about mechanical dictation. Not mechanical dictation. In other words, he didn't... How does that work? That he didn't... He didn't tell them what to put down. But we believe every word put down is from God. When I write a letter to someone and the secretary types it up and sends it out, it's got to be my word. She just can't throw her own stuff in there. That's my word. I don't have any trouble with mechanical dictation. Well, they said, no, no, no. If you're talking about mechanical dictation then you can't have the personalities in there. Because after all, God created the Bible to fit the personalities. No! God fit the personalities into the Bible. You know, into the people so that they'd write what they wrote. God gave it all. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So if you want to call it mechanical dictation, I don't care. We get the same thing. Verbal plenary, mechanical, still every word is God's word. It's all his. And we need to be careful what we get upset about and what we argue about. For instance, I've had this happen in the past where I've led somebody to Christ. They come out to church the next Sunday, and boy, they're excited. Their face is beaming. And somebody comes up to them, and, and they, it, we're glad that you've come today. And what brought you out today? And they would say something like this. Well, Brother Allison saved me. And, of course, the real spiritual people that hear that are immediately horrified. And they've got to make sure that this young convert has it right. Now, Brother Allison didn't save you. Brother Allison doesn't save anybody. Only Jesus can save you. And yet the Apostle Paul in the Word of God said, I am become all things to all men that by all means I might save some. We get more picky than God does. We need to be careful what we get upset about. Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Son of God. And he is the rock, the cornerstone.
cornerstone, the foundation of the church. The scripture is plain. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he went to the cross of Calvary. He died on that cross to pay our sin debt, shed his precious blood so that the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, could cleanse us from all sin. Thank you that he rose three days later from the dead. Thank you that you promised him from ages past. Thank you for all that you did to bring about our salvation. Lord, if there's one here without Jesus Christ as Savior, may they come to him today. Lord, for us who are Christians, so that we not be led about by every wind of doctrine, every sleight of hand, that no man spoil us. We're warned about that over and over again in the, in the epistles, that we know who Jesus of Nazareth is. He is the Christ, the anointed one. God's chosen, the deliverer. God, may we stand upon that, I pray. For I ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.